Welcome back to Public Access America. Today, I get to sit down with Danielle Irwin. Now, Danielle Irwin joined Sierra and I on our sister podcast, the Florida Action Podcast. Danielle is running for Leon County Commission at Large, Group 1. You can find her on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter at Irwin for Leon, as well as IrwinForLeon.com. But that's not why we're here to talk today. Because Danielle is also an environmental consultant, a development regulator with the state of Florida, scientist and mother. She is an oceanography graduate student from Florida State University with 20 years experience in managing our state's water resources. And I thought that was kind of cool. We, we got to touch on topics concerning the environment but we didn't get to delve deep into it because we were we were we were talking to her about her candidacy so today i asked her to stop in just so we could talk about our environment and some of the stuff she knows so we're going to be joined by her right after this theme song what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10... We did not know each other, and we could not speak to each other, because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who was taking donations from the NRA, I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors. I believed them. Children were being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. I believe them. And you can change the entire population of the world, eight billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change, change their, their lives, lives forever. forever. Well, it didn't happen, and here we are. I believe these women. You're wrong. I feel extremely lucky to, to be here with all of you fighting for justice, for equality, for the right for us to equally exist in this country. There were 329 uprisings, 257 cities within four and a half years. And neither Martin nor Fannie had any control over that. We might be headed to the promised land of speaking the truth and fighting our external liberty once we internally liberate ourselves. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless us. And may God bless us. Hi, Danielle. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful this morning. How are you, Jason? I'm doing great. I'm just, I'm so excited to be able to talk to you. We talked on the Florida Action Podcast about, um the environmental situation in Florida, but we didn't get to stay on those topics because we were we were discussing your candidacy for uh, county commission at large group one. <laughs> yes, and very exciting. We're only a few days away from that election. I, I, 
I support you, just so you know. There's a division in the Florida Action <laughs> Podcast. Some people are uncertain. I'm not uncertain. I think that Kelly's an activist, and she'll remain an activist even if she doesn't win. But we need your information because you'll just go back to the scientific community, and we won't have access to that. So that's how I see that. But so we were talking about we were talking about a lot of things, Tallahassee being higher ground, and but I really wanted to get a grasp on these algae blooms that are all over the place. Why sure. are there algae blooms and what are they doing? Sure. So it's actually a pretty simplistic um, you know, pathway for an algae bloom to develop in our waterways when you think about how much fertilizer we put on our land. And, you know, everything that goes on the land eventually runs off into the water bodies. So with every good rain, that's going to wash off of our lawns and you know, grit that's on our streets, even oil and gas and, and soil that erodes away and ends up on the streets. All that ends up washing into our water bodies. And it's usually a, a great cocktail of nutrients uh, for growth in the water body. So essentially the fertilizer you put on land becomes fertilizer in your water body. And uh, then you combine that with longs and you combine it with the um, extreme heat that we've been getting uh, for long periods of time. And it creates a, a good environment for algae to grow. And remember that algae are just single celled plants. Sure. So they need sunlight and they need you know, nitrogen and phosphorus and nitrogen and phosphorus are the main ingredients in fertilizer. So once that gets in the water by mid to late summer, you're starting to have algae blooms. Hmm. And so why they're a problem is that there are a couple of different kinds that have toxins associated with them. And then those toxins can become um, aerosolized and then irritate your respiratory pathways. Like a mold. Yeah, it's uh, or worse. You know, there are some toxins that are more neurotransmitter toxins, and they can um, they can cause more than just respiratory distress. Um, really? But from an ecological standpoint, the algae in the water bodies are uh, is a problem because when the algae eventually dies, um, then the bacteria start decomposing the back the algae, hmm. and in that process of decomposition oxygen gets consumed. So after you have an algae bloom, you have a um, decomposition process that sucks up all the oxygen in the water body. The bacteria need that oxygen to decompose the um, plant cells. And so then you end up having either a hypoxic, which means really low oxygen, or anoxic, meaning no oxygen left in the water body. And then that's what leads to fish kills. Nothing else can live there when you have a Essentially, they call it a, a dead zone. And there's a very famous example of this in the northern Gulf of Mexico, where the Mississippi River uh, feeds into the Gulf. Okay. So there's a dead zone that forms there every year. In fact, I had the privilege of mapping it with, um, I'd say, the mother of the dead zone in terms of research, an oceanographer named Dr. Nancy Rabelais. We did a summer's research project uh, mapping it one year, and you just map it by measuring oxygen in the water, and you can very clearly see where the oxygen drops off, and and there's really no life. You know, crabs can't live there, fish can't live there. Everything just vacates that area of the Gulf for the time being. That's so interesting. Even though water is constantly feeding into it, it just loses. That's how fast. That's how fast the the oxygen can be taken out of the water. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, in a matter of days to weeks. Uh, so, you know, algae blooms last, um, well, they come in the go, you know, and so as when one bloom happens and then um, ends up dying off, another bloom can, you know, be right behind it. And so it's just the cycle that happens. So eventually you end up with a, a very specific geographic region that will have this low oxygen condition in the water. And so it's a combination really of, of two things, the public health risk because of uh, the toxins that are associated with some of these algae blooms. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they've even been so bad as to um, take the lives of small dogs. When a dog goes swimming in uh, an algae bloom, that can, you know, be a, a recipe for disaster. So keep your wow. animals out of these water bodies and keep wow. your own body out of these water bodies. Agreed. And then, then it's so interesting because it takes the oxygen out of the water, but then it, it sprays out, it sprays out the, the algae into the air and we're in Florida. And I know I talked to uh, Dr. Janelle Christensen who studies the effects of that on our, on our senior citizens. And she said there can be such a range of illnesses just created from this that our seniors are actually in danger. Well, I believe it. Um, and it's mostly a risk uh, at, the coastline, so yeah. at the beaches, because when you think about waves crashing, if you've got, say, red tide, which is, you know, a type of algae bloom, okay. if you've got red tide happening, then um, as the waves crash onto the beach, those single-celled plant, um, you know, single-celled plant organisms, their cells will break open through the action of the crashing wave, and that's right. what releases the the toxins and aerosolizes the toxins into the air. Mm. So it's most, you'll, the effect will be most concentrated when you're at the edge of the water. And then as you move inland, it'll diminish. I but see. you know, if you've got a really large red tide bloom um, or uh, blue green algae bloom, then you're going to have that effect potentially go blocks into the land. Sure. Um, in terms of that, you know, that, that feeling of itchiness in your eyes and, and uncomfortableness on your throat and in your nose. That's so horrible. Well, there is a fix. There is, there is a <laughs> there's fix. A fix. Yeah. And if there's one thing that I like to do, it's uh, point out the way to a better situation. Then you're and perfect so, for that sh this show because that's what we always try to do through discussion. That's it. great. Well, there's lots of ways that it can be improved. And even us as an individual can help the situation because individual actions have a cumulative reaction, mm -hmm. cumulative effect. So I'll start at the individual level and then we'll go up. So individually, there's a couple of different things. One, if you're going to fertilize your lawn, don't do it during rainy season or don't do it when you see rain in the forecast. Okay. Two, don't buy fertilizer that has phosphorus. Um, that would be, you know, another another good uh, rule of thumb. Super and easy. three, if you're going to apply it, don't apply more than what the recommendations are on the back of the bag. So you That's actually have point. to do the calculation based on, you know, what square footage are you putting it over and how much should you be applying because you don't want to over-fertilize your lawn. Mm. Over-fertilization means that that's just that much more fertilization that's going to wash off with the storm water into our water bodies. This is America. We always think more is better, but that's I not know. necessarily true. 
Absolutely not when it comes to fertilizer. We did discuss uh, agriculture in an episode, Wide Wide World with Jeffrey, and he discussed the same thing with um, Roundup and some of the other pesticides, that it's the overuse that leaches it into the soil and brings it back into the plant. And if the half-life of, of the pesticide is longer than the the than how long it takes for the vegetable to get to us, we might eat it. And so that's yes. the issue with some of these, with Monsanto's and some of the other things. Mm -hmm. So that's so interesting. Oh yeah, and um, so Roundup, I'm pretty sure that's glycophosphate. That oh. is, um, I work in some municipalities in the state of Florida where they have ordinances that absolutely prohibit it. Right. So the, the city and the county um, maintenance, public works departments are not allowed to buy Glycophosphate, and there, that list of fertilizers that are not appropriate um, is growing, and it, as well as pesticides too. The fertilizers lead more to the algae bloom, but the mm. pesticides—that's you know what um, is causing the problem with our uh, pollinators dying off. So a large part of the risk to our pollinators, such as bees and mm. other insects, is because mm. of pesticide use. Yeah, and neonicot denied, I believe is the name of the pesticide that right now is on the, the ban list um, that Good. some local governments are thinking about. It's not universal though, so it really does come down to you know, public education, public awareness, public prioritization of things like pollinators, which we really should you know, prioritize our pollinators, but- We should. Yeah, absolutely. We all love honey and we all love bu uh, butterflies. <laughs> Well, we need pollinators in order for things to grow. So mm -hmm. it's really important. And we'd have a, a food crisis in the planet if our pollinators die off. And I did hear a rumor that Leon County uses Roundup on its medians. So that's disturbing. But I don't have, I didn't look into it. I just saw a Facebook post about it. So. Well, it's kind of exciting. So we talked about the individual level of what you can do on your own property um, mm -hmm. to help the, I live on a water body, so we don't use, um, it's just a small lake, but we don't use fertilizer at all on yeah. our lawn, uh, just as a rule of thumb. And Leon County does have a fertilizer ordinance, which um, requires a buffer of no fertilizer application right along a water body. It's a oh, very good. small buffer. I Don't quote me on it. It's 5, 10, or 15 feet, something like that. You know, it's just a small swath along the, the water body that they don't want you to. But the exciting news is that now Leon County is considering enhancing its fertilizer ordinance. And that could mean that um, fertilizer application may be prohibited during rainy season, which we have a really long rainy season here. We're in it right now. Mm. Um, or it could be, there's a feature in Leon County called the Cody Scarp, which is a, a geologic feature that north of it, um, the, the groundwater is not as connected. I'm not a geologist, I'll say this. So my That's knowledge great. of Cody Scarp is relatively surficial, no pun intended. Um, and so <laughs> north of the Cody Scarp, you're not going to be having a lot of connectivity from the groundwater to our springs downstream. Okay. So particularly our Wakulla River and Wakulla Spring. Um, but south of the Cody Scarp, anything that gets put on the land goes into the groundwater and makes its way down to the stream. And it's been tracked through dye tracer studies. Mm. So the most vulnerable area in Leon County is going to be south of that Cody Scarp in terms of threatening our downstream water bodies. So the, the fertilizer ordinance that, you know, one idea that has been toyed with in the past, 
um, was maybe we just prohibit it if you live south of the Cody Scarp, or sure. maybe we prohibit no phosphorus fertilizers allowed. That would be great. So those, I think, are all going to be part of the discussion in September, mid-September, when Leon County Commission comes back because Commissioner Dozier asked staff to bring back a, a staff report on sort of the, the universe of fertilizer ordinances, what's out there in other communities in Florida, what would be applicable here in Leon County. So I'm looking forward to that discussion, and um, I hope that you know people that are interested in water quality in Leon County will pay attention to that. I'm actually interested in that too now for some reason. That's so <laughs> neat. I love that. And it, it depends county to county. If Leon County uses it, but then other counties in the area don't, we, we need to work together. You were talking about individual, then community, and then larger. I'm guessing yeah. the whole state eventually just needs to work on this at the same time. They do. And so I'll talk about the state level in just a minute because I want to talk about one more thing related to actions that cities and counties can do. And we're mm -hmm. doing some of that here um, to help improve water quality in our water bodies. And so one thing um, is to better manage our stormwater intercept the stormwater, encourage it to infiltrate into uh, um, you know, into the, the property that it is generated on. Uh, that's called low impact development techniques or low impact development strategies, best management practices or LID, you often hear it referred to as LID. That's things like um, vegetated swales, rain gardens, porous pavement. It allows the rainfall to fall on your property and then get um, absorbed by the land instead of run off of impervious. So think of your, your pavement, your driveway, your parking lot, your roof. Those are all impervious surfaces that the okay. water will just run off of, right? right. So the, te the technique that we usually use in land development practices is collect all that water that's run off into a pond, and then eventually that pond will pop off and run into um, often a natural water body. So the theory is that you've retained it long enough that solids have settled down to the bottom. So that's like all the, you know, all the dirt that's on the road, all the soil mm. that washes off land onto the road, washes into a stormwater pond and settles there. So in theory, the water that then leaves the stormwater pond is cleaner than the water that entered it. Okay. Um, but, you know, stormwater ponds are um, not tested in terms of, um, you know, the, the quality of the water leaving the pond and state water quality standards do not apply to stormwater ponds because they are meant to be, um, you know, dirtier in a sense because they're collecting all of that dirty water to give it a chance to, um, you know, get clarified or clear, sure. you know, clean it up a little bit. Now, if you have vegetation along the edge of your water bodies, especially if you're not fertilizing it, then that vegetation can actually start reducing the nitrogen and phosphorus in the stormwater in the water pond in the um, stormwater pond. Okay. Um, because it, that's what it you know it uses it to grow. So having a, a nice vegetated edge, especially if it's native vegetation on an edge of a pond, you'd often have wetland vegetation. Um, you know, and hmm. Of various kinds, herbaceous trees, um, you know, there's a whole range of choices, sure. uh, then they will help clean up the water in the pond. What we're seeing here in Leon County is that some of these stormwater ponds are receiving stormwater that is, um, you know, has so many nutrients in it that 
the algae bloom is happening in the stormwater pond. Correct. And now that we're making our stormwater ponds recreational amenities, putting walking trails and paths around them and inviting the public to, um, you know, be, interact with them, at least from a view shed perspective, you know, not interact from a fishing or a swimming, but, right. you know, being able to walk around it. And water features are very calming, so they're very good for mental health. Um, but now that we're encouraging the public to come around our stormwater ponds, public is seeing these stormwater ponds with algae blooms in them, and they don't like them. And then if the bloom gets big enough, they're going to be you know, causing respiratory distress. So yes. there's this whole cycle there. So if the local governments clean it up before the water gets to the pond to a certain degree, then the pond is better able to handle it. So that's another way. We talked about infiltration and low-impact development techniques. So that's one way. Um, and that can be controlled through the comprehensive plan, can be controlled through the local building department. And, and so that's uh, one thing that I'm interested in is, is actually getting an LID ordinance on our books so that we can start changing the way our land development practices are handling water to begin with. That's so okay. neat. You, you, yeah. just, you know all about the, the land development and I just, I love the, I love this. Keep going. <laughs> well, so the bigger scale and the more expensive aspect of what we do as a city and as a county is um, a, st a stormwater project that would um, address it, the water upstream before it gets to the, the stormwater pond or the water body. And so there are a number of those projects that are going on throughout Leon County and have been for years. Interestingly, the water bodies that I live on in the Kalarn Estates area, um, these are natural water bodies, but they were dredged out. So they've been manipulated by the developer, what, I don't know, 20 plus years ago. I probably am off 10 years on that, but a long time ago. It's, uh, and those water bodies have been having problems with nitrogen and phosphorus, particularly phosphorus right now. So the state wants to come in and um, put a pollution limit on our water bodies here in Killarn. Uh, but our water bodies also act like a stormwater pond. So there's sort of this hybrid of natural, where water quality standards would apply, and stormwater pond, where water quality standards would not apply. So it puts our, our you know, puts us in sort of this gray area in the mm. rules. Um, and the water body projects that the city and the county, predominantly the city, but also the county, did to try and improve the water quality in our pond. So they did a bunch of upstream projects okay. before the water would get to us. Um, our phosphorus numbers have increased, not decreased. So, so there's a little bit of a mystery there that we're working on with the state. And uh, we're talking in our community, even I'm on the Homeowner Association board, and we're talking about the possibility of uh, putting a fertilizer ordinance or a fertilizer rule in our um, in our uh, HOA covenants that okay. would be, really affect people that live on the lake, on the sure. multiple lakes here. So there's, you know, those different ways to do it. So then we've talked about individual, we've talked about city, we've talked about county. Let's go to the state level. Let's do it. I, um, I have to give... I will reluctantly give, but I have to give some kudos to DeSantis for when he took office because he recognized that harmful algal blooms are a problem for tourism in the state of Florida. And when tourism gets threatened in the state of Florida, the state's budget 
is significantly affected. Sure. So it's really um, important to keep our beaches healthy. And, and by beaches healthy, I mean two things. I mean wide enough with enough sand on them that mm. there's space for turtle nesting and shorebird nesting and people recreating as well as storm protection. You know, our beaches give a lot of storm protection for the properties that are, are closest to the beach. Sure. So a healthy beach is a wide beach, but a healthy beach is also a beach that has near shore water quality that is good and not having harmful algal blooms. So a healthy beach it, uh, relates not just to the sand and how much of the sand is on the beach, but also the quality of the water washing up on the beach. So healthy beaches are really, really important for a stable Florida economy because of the tourism connection there. And he recognized that. He assigned a chief science officer. Um, you know, first time we've ever had a chief science officer in the state of Florida. Wow. And that science officer was focused on establishing this um, harmful algal bloom task force. Uh, and this task force has identified a number of the things that we've already talked about that need to be addressed in terms of cleaning up the stormwater before it gets to the water bodies. And so that's not just stormwater. I neglected to mention one other really key component to um, poor water quality in our water bodies, and that's both lakes, the springs, as well as our near shore coastal environment, and that's septic tanks. They're all over in Florida, aren't they? They are all over, and the Harmful Algal Bloom Task Force identified those septic tanks as being a large contributor um, to poor water quality and to um, setting up the stage for harmful algal blooms. Hmm. So here in Leon County, we actually have um, lots and lots of money, as well as state money, not just, you know, our own uh, money, but we, we're getting a lot of state funding to convert septic um, properties, you know, properties that are using septic systems sure. to sewer. And so that, I mean, we could go down that rabbit hole as well, because the whole septic to sewer conversion um, world is expanding since Local governments are recognizing they can't sewer every place. Even in Leon County, we can't sewer all of our rural areas because it's not cost effective mm. to run miles of sewer pipe out to you know, address a dozen homes. Right. Um, and then the, the, the people that live in um, our rural areas and the people that are on septic are also a big hurdle to converting over to sewer because they don't want to pay the connection fee. You know, the local government will bring the sewer pipe out there, um, you know, depending upon where it is, you know, mm. we've got the issue here of we've got city jurisdictions and so our city utility services that area, but we don't have a utility, uh, at least a, a sewage utility that handles our, not our, um, county un, you know our, what do they call it unincorporated county areas so the areas right. of the county that are outside of the city that that area has to request it almost has to request the the sewer be run to them they do they do indeed and you know the city sewer would not necessarily go out to all areas out there so that's a cost benefit analysis that talgov needs to make and um you know, and I'm not sure what they all put into that metric and, and that decision process, but I know I spoke with Commissioner Deloge about the possibility of 
getting more sewer lines in some of the areas of mm. um, the unincorporated county. And this was the biggest issue he, he came up with. You know, the county does not have a, a sewage utility. So we rely on TalGov or, you know, Talquin is the other water utility that services some of the, um, some of the r- rural Leon County areas, but I don't believe they do sewage. I don't mm. think they do sewer pipes. So I could be wrong on that. Though. It is a slow process. Not to mention that some of our sewers that have been around for a while here are deteriorating. So we need to maintain the sewers that we have existing as well as the expanding sewers. You have really hit on another lesser known point in Leon County. We have sewage pipes that are leaking and break. So Mm -hmm. our maintenance of our sewage system that we have in place in the city in particular, um, you know, we need to do maintenance on that. And that is being done. It's not like we're not doing it. It's just a really expensive and really slow process. Oh, I know. I saw Um, it on on my utility bill and I was like, why am I paying so much for storm sewers? And, and And then we talked on the Florida Action Podcast, and I said, she mentioned that. I get it. I want to know more. (laughs) Yeah, and actually the city right now is under a a warning from the state because of our leaking sewage pipes. So the city has been put on notice that, hey, you seem to have quite a few gallons of sewage Mm. you're leaking through Mm. these pipes, so you need to address this. Um, and that that was brought to my attention by another um, citizen here that really focuses on sewage pipes. And, you know, I can bring attention to it, um, you know, not even being elected, I can bring attention to it. But if I get elected um, as Leon County Commission, let me say, when I get elected as well, Leon County Commissioner, here, here. Um, I'll be able to at least have a more powerful conversation with the city. This is the city's sewage system, right. not the county's sewage system. So the city is under this this warning letter from DEP, not the county. Now there's collaboration that needs to happen there, um, you know, but the city's got its, its own utility, so they, they kind of need to take care of their own pipes. That's right. And maybe in addition to another sewer treatment plant, uh, opposite side of town as the one that it's on now might help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was surprised to learn throughout this campaign that we actually have about seven wastewater treatment facilities really? in, in Leon County. Yes. Um, and they're scattered throughout the entire county um, and city, of course. Um, so, you know, that could be part of it. Uh, that's why one thing I've talked about uh, a few times here on the campaign trail is that we need a comprehensive water plan, whether it's a storm, a stormwater doesn't get at the septic side. So a, a regional right. stormwater management plan is helpful, but then you're omitting this other aspect of it, which is the, you know, the human sewage aspect of it. So we really need to combine those two things and have this, you know, this city county understanding of what are we looking at today? a listing of all the water bodies that are already impaired and on the state's impaired list, we've got about four of them here, you know, Munson Slough, Lake Munson, um, oh, Lake Jackson just got delisted, but, you know, we kind of think that that might be a little artificial based on the way they did the testing water quality. That's been <laughs> on the list. It's impaired. 
Yeah, there's a lot of ways that you can manipulate the mm. results through where you test, when you test, how often you test, and you know right. how how many tests you collect um, of water quality samples. So, like Jackson's another one. You know, there are all these water bodies, and then mine is trying to you know the state's trying to put it on the list when it has never been on the list. So, you know, we've cut these issues that span our natural water bodies, our stormwater, our, our sewage and, and septic systems, and all of it needs to be looked at comprehensively. Now, uh, along with new development, because they want, they want to develop new stuff in Tallahassee and the county, but yet it has to be incorporated. And, and that's why I, I liked you a lot is because you're a planner, you're a city planner that way. And so you can design new development to go with these protocols that are, that need to be enacted for the old infrastructure. Yeah, I do like thinking about things big picture. I will just clarify that I'm technically not a planner, but, um, but at least by education and by okay. profession, but I am a, a, a planner in the sense of, you know, I like to think of where we are now, where we are trying to get to, and then plan out the path. And that's the way I've approached my like life. That. That's the way I approach this campaign. That's the way I approach my career. You know, it's just some people are planners and some are not. Hmm, um, that's for sure. So you really do need to think of it holistically. And, you know, you brought up new development. I'll just mention that the Walani Arch Master Plan has a requirement in it for a regional stormwater management plan, which I was encouraged to see. But, of course, then it made me ask, huh, well, I wonder how that will tie in with our other regional stormwater management plans, which right. apparently don't exist. So, <laughs> so, so we're doing a good thing for the new development. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. There's so much to think about. I do want to touch on some other, a uh, uh, couple of other subjects, if that's okay. Absolutely. Because you had talked about Tallahassee being higher ground and I know you've, you've been in California and I know this is an issue for say Manhattan and New Orleans, as well as Florida is this, the sea levels rising. Now some yes. people, some people think this is just natural. This is something the way the world goes, but I think I don't think that it is. I think this no. is this is caused by man and I think part of that is during this coronavirus our our atmospheres have been getting slightly better. Yeah. And so I think that the proof is in the pudding there, but I wanted to talk about that and maybe we've never done an environmental show here. So I'm I'm assuming that people don't understand the rise of the seas and its effects and why it matters to us and how we can stop it. And I was hoping mm -hmm. you, you might be able to address that. Sure. And I won't get too detailed, but I'll give um, the big picture because I think that that, you know, really says a lot. Mm. So as we are um, emitting greenhouse gases um, and we emit greenhouse gases in practically everything we do, mm. uh, manufacturing, transportation, you know, creating things, building materials, you know, all, all kinds of different ways that we create greenhouse gases that then cause um, our environment, our atmosphere to our protective layer, particularly our ozone um, layer to thin. That's where you hear reference to the ozone hole. Right. Um, and we're going to talk about that next because you did study that from Antarctica, and that was so interesting to me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that was pretty fantastic being able to go down there and see, um, actually see how they measure the ozone hole. Um, so, but when we do that, it lets, it, it lets more um, 
you know, energy in that will heat up our planet. And so that heating up of our climate then causes a number of different things. For one, it causes thermal expansion of our water bodies. The water bodies literally will, will um, appear to have more water. The, they also melt our um, glaciers and melt our snow caps. So you're going to have more of that freshwater input. And, and remember that glaciers, even ones that are you know, hanging out in the ocean, those glaciers are freshwater. They, you know, salt water doesn't freeze. So, right. uh, so the, what is locked into those icebergs and ice shelves and, and glaciers is freshwater. So when that freshwater then um, melts and goes into our ocean, it changes the salinity, it changes the, you know, the density of the water, and then that changes circulation patterns. Um, but it also means more water in our oceans. Right. So those are a couple of different ways to think about how sea level rise is happening. In Southeast Florida, the, uh, um, the, the Gulf Stream is slowing. And as that Gulf Stream slows, the surface of the water raises higher um, just through the action of slowing of that Gulf Stream. So there's, sure. um, you know, so that means that there's more water um, at a higher elevation, not necessarily more water, but water that is at a higher elevation coming onto our beaches, coming onto into our canals and into our rivers that are connected to the oceans as well. So it causes um, flooding, you know, and it may be imperceptible day to day, but decade to decade, it is not imperceptible. When you start talking with a lot of, um, of old timers, you know, people that have lived on a water body or in a floodplain for decades, they'll tell you that they flood more often. And you can get it through anecdotal, but you know, I'm a scientist, so I, I like using tide gauge data. I've got a, actually a fantastic visual presentation that kind of lays it all out. And it's been able to directly connect the rise in sea level based on tide gauge data, based on satellite altimetry data of the surface of the ocean, um, you know, based on a number of different data collection methods that all corroborate the same end result of that, yes, our, our seas are rising, um, and it is directly connected to the amount of greenhouse gas we put out there. So why is it a problem for us? Well, it's largely a problem, us, I say, Florida. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, I'll focus it mostly on Florida because in Leon County, it's not as much of a, of a problem. You know, right. I looked actually at the sea level rise projections for 30 and 60 years out uh, for Leon County. And, you know, the counties to the south of us are at great risk of, um, you know, more frequent and, um, deeper inundation issues right. as the water floods onto the land. Um, but, you know, from, we, from we Leon to, County's perspective, we really don't have that coming into our county. We should remember that the water, it floods in and it saturates the ground. And even if the surface water disappears, our ground is now saturated, which means it can take less re- reoccurring flooding. And it's salty. So now you're going to be decreasing um, agricultural yields. Mm. You could, and this is what's happening down in Southeast Florida, saltwater infiltration into drinking water wells Mm. has caused uh, some of the counties in Southeast Florida to get new wells, put new wells in that are further inland to escape that saltwater intrusion. 
you know, we're, we've got a very porous geology. Right. You know, lime rock is, is very porous. So the, you know, the sea level, as that rises, we're not just seeing it on the surface, we're seeing it in the subsurface infiltrate in as well from the coastal areas. And I don't think people realize that. Yeah, but that's a very big risk. You know, the surface when you start water is some uh-huh. of the last that you, you it's, it's one of the last reactions. Um, I think that our, um, our lowlands that are, well, essentially our, our floodplains are some of the more insidious um, risks that we're experiencing. And I'll, again, just focus it on Southeast Florida for mm-hmm. a minute because you know, that's where I do the majority of my practice as an environmental consultant. Um, and that's, when, that's ground zero in the state of Florida for sea level rise impacts. Wow. Um, so the back bay areas, think about, you know, off of the coast, think of your intercoastal waterway and all the floodlands around it, your Indian River Lagoon, your Biscayne Bay, mm. that would be considered back bay. And then there are water bodies that come off of that and go even further inland. Yes. So those are what um, the Army Corps in Miami-Dade County actually is studying the back bay area of the Army Corps from a storm surge prevent up. Uh, standpoint and they want to put up these big floodgates which you know the army corps always thinks big but mm-hmm. you know our big army corps projects are not always successful in the long term we realize decades later oh crap we probably should not have done that <laughs> <laughs> so that i'm involved right now in in reviewing the army corps back bay study for um, miami-dade county somebody has to be with a number of people. Yeah, I'm not the only one for sure. I mean, there are lots of brains on that one trying to troubleshoot it and, you know, see what other alternatives there may be because the Army Corps kind of latched onto this one floodgate as this is what's going to solve it all. And meanwhile, you disrupt public access to the water, you disrupt the ecological system, you, I mean, you disrupt so many different things. So there's, there's lots to consider. And that's a project that's probably 10 or more years away. But when the Army Corps plans something 10 years out, it's hard to stop that moving bus at sure. the you know, 8th, ninth, or 10th year. So we have to try and lodge all those concerns and, and thoughts now in the process. Um, but anyway, those back bay areas, that's where you're not having the wealthy coastal waterfront homes. You're having your average everyday people and they are the ones that are being flooded. The amount of property value, like just if you look at real estate value, the amount of that that is at risk in Florida is astronomical. Um, don't ask me to quote numbers because it's going to be different city to city, county to county, oh, and sure. statewide. I don't even think the numbers have been developed statewide yet. And the numbers are going to change as the years go on. So Absolutely. Absolutely. So what can we do, right? What can we do? I always, I'm I'm a woman of action, whether it's in my own life, my family's life, my community's life, or the, you know, bigger Mm. picture. Um, So what can we do? Well, for one thing, look at how much waste we generate. Um, You know, how much trash do we generate? That's by default going to make you look at how much plastic you use Mm. because Ziploc bags, plastic water bottles, Um, You know, anything that's disposable, we live a very disposable life. Every time we use a disposable product, we are feeding that greenhouse gas machine because the production of those disposable products gives off greenhouse gas. So if if we reduce the demand for those disposable products, 
then we can start having an impact on there being less of them created and then that will have the effect of less greenhouse gas being emitted through the manufacturing of those products. So that's I one like way. That. I like that. Right. You know, just don't use a plastic bottle. Use a, you know, a reusable container, a reusable water bottle. And if everyone did that, <laughs> you know, think of the effect. That's so right. That's, that's one way. Um, another is if you're you know, physically able and you live in a geographic area that has the green infrastructure to support this ride your bike to work or ride the bus to work or walk to work, you know, and that's one of the things I've mentioned about the Walani Arch. We need to be thinking of our communities in the future of how can we set them up so that people don't need to use their car to get somewhere. I agree. That's another way. But I don't drive as well. So I, I bike everywhere. So I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, and I do both. Um, in fact, the first time I lived in, in Tallahassee in the 99 to 2001 timeframe, um, I didn't own a car. I biked everywhere. I actually got hit on my bike at one point, but that did not dissuade me. Luckily it was not a, a bad accident. But, um, that, that is another issue in, in Florida. Yes. <laughs> is getting hit on your bike. But I digress. We'll go, we'll keep on the, well, and not just, well, and, and so this actually does connect. See, for me, so many things in the environmental world are interconnected. Um, it does segue with this conversation, though, because not just biker safety, but pedestrian safety is a problem in, in Tallahassee. And the way we design our roads, there's a, a way of designing them. There's a couple of different ways to design them. Complete streets is one term. And by complete, it means you're providing the opportunity for a range of transportation methods, not just vehicle centric. So you're providing bike lanes and pedestrian um, you know sidewalks that are actually going to protect your, protect your pedestrians and intersections that shorten the distance that a pedestrian has to cross the street mm. um, so that it has you know less risk for the for the walker who's crossing the street that has an effect of disincentivizing vehicles which then will help the community look for other ways to get to a certain part of town because it's terrible to drive and because the streets, you know, don't allow for a lot of cars and there's not a lot of parking. So then that also will help reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. It's sort of this chicken and egg thing. I like what do that. you do first? Um, so yeah, you know, the way we design our streets, that is, uh, you know, a factor and, um, Tallahassee and Leon County has a combined planning department. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but, they, um, they have functionally consolidated. There's a difference between functional consolidation and consolidation. And functional consolidation is going to be more related to a particular aspect of what your two local governments are doing. Okay. And so we've functionally consolidated things like our dispatch here, you know, our 911 dispatch, right. um, as well as our planning department. Our um, comprehensive plan is a combined city-county one. Um, is, that, is that a good thing? It is a good thing okay. because then you don't have, you know, one government doing one thing and the other doing something else. And, you know, when you're functionally consolidated, it really inspires communication. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you need the right hand to talk to the left hand on some of these. I like that. Yeah. So I can't remember why I was going down that road of a functional consolidation, but um, I do see it as a good thing from a planning perspective here. Mm. Um, you know, it allows us uh, to to think long-term and one of those long-term 
processes, in fact, Blueprint has been a good example of this, is to prioritize complete streets and prioritize um, alternative uh, transportation. Now, they haven't done a good enough job prioritizing alternative transportation, but the shift to complete streets and thinking about those and implementing those, Gain Street is a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, that is kind of standard for them now. So that Blueprint gets a... You know, kind of a bad rap in a lot of things and a lot of things are rightly so in terms of you know they could do a lot better job with community development and economic development sure with the way they allocate their money and um but the you know some of the ideas coming out of blueprint are to give from from my perspective they get two thumbs up you know we've got the first green roof being designed and constructed in a blueprint project really what's that tell me about that yeah. Green roofs? Oh yeah. gosh, those are a great LID technique as well, low impact development stormwater technique. Green roofs, oh, and they also help with heat island effect. I mean, they help with so many different things. So it's a sustainable building practice where essentially your roof will become a, um, a you know, a platform of soil and plants. Yes, I that, love this. Yeah, so it does a couple of different things. One, it absorbs, it converts an impervious roof into a, pervious roof mm-hmm. so that's one good thing so you're going to be right. able to absorb some of that storm water get it and that storm that excuse me that rainwater and then that rainwater can be um you know sent off of the roof through that green roof right. um, into a series of rain barrels and, and what whatever else you've got set up there um, but it also reduces the albedo effect of our roofs. So, and that's where it helps with heat island as well. <laughs> albedo uh, effect. Do you are you familiar with albedo effect? Do you want me to describe it? Yeah, describe. I think I know what you're talking about, but I'd rather you describe it. So, simple question: When you're out in the noonday sun, do you want to be wearing a white shirt or a black shirt? A white shirt. Absolutely. That's because a white shirt is going to reflect that solar energy. A black shirt is going to absorb it. Think of the color of our roofs. Are they dark or are they light? Um, I know in Chicago, ours were white. I don't know. I haven't looked at many roofs here in Tallahassee. Dark. More often than not, they're dark. Mm. And, And so those dark roofs are going to absorb that solar energy, which does a couple of different things. One, it exacerbates the urban heat island effect. Cumulatively, it makes the neighborhood hotter. Mm. But the second thing it does is it's going to make your HVAC system, your air conditioning system, work extra hard to cool down your house because your house is attracting all of that and absorbing all of that solar energy. So if we put a green roof up there, a green roof is usually going to have more of a reflective albedo than a dark you know, shingle roof or something right. along those lines. So it helps with that, um, you know, from that perspective as well. I think people around here were relying on their tree canopies too much and they've been removing so many trees. I know my friend lives in uh, Kalarna Estates, and they've been removing trees his neighbors have around him. And so now mm-hmm. his air conditioning is working harder and yes, he has a yes. Dark, dark roof. So I'd love that. I love the idea of using space for vegetation and growth. I think oh, yeah, because so then mean. also your vegetation is going to um, you know, consume that excess carbon, some of that excess carbon. Mm-hmm. So having more open space and more you know, green space and, and more trees, that will be helpful as well to offsetting mm-hmm. greenhouse gas emissions because you know, 
plants breathe in the opposite direction of humans. That's we right. In oxygen, give out carbon, carbon dioxide, and the trees and plants and grass and everything does the exact opposite. And you know that brings it full circle because it will also help our pollinators. Yes. So I think that's just such a great idea. I love it. I love when things come first full circle like that. Now, you were talking about our beaches, and you were talking about on the Florida Action Podcast something that I thought was just so interesting. We don't need to do a lot on it, but you were talking about sand wars and <laughs> the erosion of our beaches. Mm-hmm. And But I did want to mention really quick while we were on our the warming of our oceans – when our oceans, when the Gulf Stream slows down and our oceans get warmer, that's what hurricanes feed on. And, yes. And so the warmer rising water with less salt just creates more intense hurricanes. <laughs> yes, it sure does. It's a feedback loop. Right. And it creates um, a, a large amount of risk to our coral system, our South Atlantic coral track. Coral reef I, love, track. I love coral and I, I yes it's bleaching our coral right yes and not just bleaching other diseases are coming in as well and for the past few years we've had um, really just for the you know since around 2017 or so we've been having a lot of disease waves of disease come through our south atlantic coral reef track mm. and it's it's really done a number on it um so that is another big risk with having warmer oceans the warmer the ocean combined with the poor quality runoff from the land. You know, where are our coral reefs? Well, they're in our nearshore waters because they need to be shallow enough that they can get light because a coral, remember, is a combination of both an animal and a plant living symbiotically. So Agreed. they need access to sunlight. So you combine hotter ocean water with poor water quality and it breeds disease. Mm. It just sets the stage for disease. You and know, that's like global. Eating. That's Australia. Oh, yeah. That's here. That's oh, yeah. that's uh, that's around the world. And coral yeah. is important. It it just is. I I don't know why, <laughs> but I know that it is. I know there's a lot of life teeming in there, and and bigger life feeds off of it, and bigger life feeds off of that, and it's all the chain. And that's why. It's oh, absolutely. And that's more of like the ecosystem, um, mm-hmm. you know, system the ecosystem services that it provides. But you know, a lot of people they'll say, oh, yeah, that's all well and fine, but they don't really start caring about it until you put it in more of that anthropocentric mm. uh, perspective. Like, what does it mean to a human if we right. lose our coral reef track? Well, a coral reef track is actually our first line of defense in storm surge. That's right. It's an underground structure that breaks up wave energy um, associated with storm surge. That is a great point. Thank you. Yeah. So you're going to have more erosion on your shoreline. You're going to have worse effect with storm surge if you have no coral reef structure out there helping to break it in that first line of defense. And that's how a professional brings it back to erosion of our beaches and the sand wars. Very good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we put a lot of sand on the beach to try and really um, fortify it for three reasons. Habitat, recreation, and protection, storm protection. And that's in our statute. So we have, oh gosh, I'm going to forget my numbers, like 825 miles of sandy beach. About half of those miles of sandy beach are critically eroded. Mm 
And about half of those miles, so somewhere around 250, 225 miles of um, Sandy Beach are what's called managed or engineered beaches, where it's so eroded that it has threatened all of those three factors, recreation, habitat, and storm protection. So the state and the feds, the Army Corps has um, their own, you know, beaches in in the state of Florida that they manage beach uh, projects on, will nourish the beaches. And by nourishing the beaches, we mean you're you're putting sand on the beach, like hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cubic yards of sand on the beach at any given time. And these are considered... People realize that we do that. Yeah. I I talk with people all the time about it and they're like, what? My beach isn't just a natural beach. I'm like, no, Mm -hmm. the beach you're standing on is sand from offshore that's been pumped onto the beach. Mm. Um, So that's one way that sand gets onto the beach is that you find a depression offshore, but close enough to the shore that you can just, you know, take a, a hydraulic dredge out there, suck it up and pipeline it onto the beach and put it out on the beach and then grade it. So you have a nice beach. The other way that is done is by actually going to upland mines that have been um, excavating down into our relic sand dunes, you know, mm. back from when sea level came much higher onto our peninsula. Okay. Um, so the sand wars really come down to um, the offshore sand sources being diminished in some areas, like my offshore Miami-Dade County. Miami-Dade County, that was the very first beach nourishment program in the state of Florida back in the 70s. Of course. And they've been using their offshore borrow areas since the 70s, and now they're depleted. And they don't replenish on a fast rate. They replenish on a geologic rate. Right. Um, So now Miami-Dade County, when they want to go nourish their beaches, they're searching for sand. Um, And... The state and the feds, so this would be DEP and the Army Corps, got together a number of years ago. In fact, this was when I was at DEP back in like the 2015-2014 time frame and did a sand search assessment, basically a demand and supply um, type of study. What counties and what cities need sand for their beaches? How much do they need and let's you know look out 30 years, 50 years, how much sand do they need? And then let's look at all of our offshore borrow areas that could potentially provide beach compatible sand mm. and how much is there. And we actually found that we have enough offshore to meet all of our needs, all of our demands, but the distribution is, is not um, equal. So Miami-Dade County has very little, but St. Lucie County offshore, their beaches has quite a lot. So St. Lucie County is looking at their offshore borrow areas and saying, hey, we don't want Miami-Dade County to come take some of our sand. So now you have essentially a sand war type of scenario. (laughs) But that just raises the price. Right. It does. And and that's where taxpayers start feeling the hit because these projects are funded by the feds, the state, the local government, and the local government share is usually through some sort of taxing arrangement, whether Mm -hmm. it's a tourist development tax or a municipal service tax unit like an MSTU or some other type of um, taxing district that is going to tax either the whole county or you know, just a certain distance from the beach or however they set it up. It's set up differently in different counties. Right. Um, and so they're going to be essentially having to spend more because of having to get the sand to their beach from a greater distance. <laughs> not even sand is free, people. <laughs> no, not even sand. 
That is crazy. Okay, so time to talk about the ozone because I think this is so interesting. The truth is the greenhouse gases, what they do is, so sun, sunlight comes in, ultraviolet light, heat from the sun comes in, it bounces off the earth, and then it's supposed to go out. But that's where the gases stop the heat from getting out. So it, the heat comes in easy. It just doesn't go out very easy. And so that's causing the heat that we're feeling from, that's what they call global warming. But you, you looked at the ozone hole that we've been hearing about since like the 80s. And it's just, it's so neat to me. Did you actually go to Antarctica for this? I did. I did. I went as an oceanographer um, with the National Science Foundation on a grant that they, um, so NSF actually has um, this long-term ecological research program, LTER for long-term ecological research, this LTER program where they have, I don't know, maybe about a dozen or so sites around the globe mm. that they monitor every year the same way, just looking for patterns of change. Sure. And Antarctica is one of their LTER sites. So I got to participate in one year of their it was one season, I should say, one season sure. of their um, long-term ecological research data collection effort. And given that my background is oceanography and I had been working in a lab that was doing research on phytoplankton, we've already been talking about phytoplankton pretty much this whole show, Ooh. an algae bloom. That's a bloom of a specific type of phytoplankton. It's a okay. cell plant. And, and I'll also mention that phytoplankton absorb more carbon from our atmosphere than all of the forests combined on the surface of the globe. So we Right. Are, and that's yeah, why our, our oceans create more oxygen yes. than, than the trees. And that's yes. why destroying our oceans is such a vital importance to know about. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we are going to be in a much worse off um, situation if we start messing with the quality of the ocean the way we have been, um, just from a perspective of having, you know, having enough oxygen to breathe and mm. being able to combat, um, you know, global warming. Right. Um, so, yeah, I got to go down there and I did a, a six week research cruise. Neat. And um, the, you know, we were, so <laughs> it's not all that exciting from the standpoint of it was 12 hours a day of filtering water, right? <laughs> you know, collecting water and filtering water and collecting more water and filtering more water. And then, you know, analyzing the amount of um, chlorophyll that was collected on each filter, which gave us a, an understanding of how much phytoplankton was in the water. And since phytoplankton is the base of the food chain, it then sets the stage for, you know, how much krill you'll have. And then that sets the stage for how much, um, you know, how many whales and, and penguins. I mean, it just, it goes up through the food chain. Right. Whales so really eat, important to look whales eat a large amount of plankton. Absolutely. Baleen whales. Yes, they sure, they sure do. Um, so uh, phytoplankton was the, the main thing that I was researching when I was there, but through the process of the six weeks, we got to visit a couple of different research stations. Um, so we visited uh, a station called Rothra, which is the British station, and they were doing different types of research there. I learned how to telemark ski there as on an off day, which was kind of fun. <laughs> you know, you don't expect to go down to Antarctica to go skiing. <laughs> 
Um, so that was kind of fun. And then we had a, a, they have a big airstrip at the Rothera base. So we were able to uh, play a big soccer game. I was in a Chilean flag vessel. And ha- so the staff was largely Chilean and right. they love their soccer. Of course. Um, so we had a great soccer game on the airstrip at the Rothera station. That was a lot of fun. I mean, but the tell ozone. Me, tell me that's not just amazing that to ski in Antarctica or even play soccer, even just to be out off the coast looking at it would be incredible to me. So it, yeah. I think that's just so exciting. I do want to know when you're walking, does it feel like there's less gravity? Like you're going to fall off of the planet? No. <laughs> nope. Never been asked that question before, Jason. Interesting thought process there. Yeah. No, it doesn't, though. No. Okay. So ozone. Um, yeah. So ozone. So the second station we visited was a Ukrainian station. The name is escaping me, but a very small station. It's one of the only stations where they winter over. Mm. Winters in Antarctica are dark and long and cold Mm. um so usually people don't winter over they go for the summer season i went during the summer but in you in the ukraine um or at the ukrainian base they winter over there so it was a group of about a dozen research scientists all men Mm. and of course we show up with a a a research vessel that was 50 percent female so (laughs) those men were really happy (laughs) to see us so we got to do a little socializing but that happened after they showed us their research um their research equipment but they and it's really just this large room of a um essentially like a big telescope pointed up at the ozone hole. So a lot of people don't realize that the ozone hole opens and closes and forms over the South Pole, um, over Antarctica. I did not know that. Yeah, and actually, I believe um, that they are starting to see one develop over the North Pole as well, but don't quote me on that. Wow. Um, So this ozone hole that they were measuring down there um, comes and goes seasonally, and so they measure how wide the hole is and and then how it contracts through the year, Um, and then that research gets used by scientists all over the globe. So we were able to check out that, and, you know, it's not a lot of active things to look on or to look at. Uh, so that took all of about 15 minutes. And right. so then they brought us down to their break room where they had vodka on tap. You know, they're a bunch of Ukrainians. So sure. it, was, it, it led to a, a fun evening of playing pool and um, just hanging out and you know, trying to communicate with people that don't speak English. Sure. But they're happy to see you. Oh, yeah. It was a great, great time. Yeah. You know, really an opportunity of a lifetime. Agreed. Antarctica would be a place that I would love to go, but would be scared to death of going to. So I think that's really neat. <laughs> well, they do have have cruises that go down there now. So now you can actually go down on pleasure. In fact, when we were down there, we saw a couple of cruise boats. That was the weirdest thing. Hmm. We were in a steel-hulled icebreaker. Um, I'm not sure if the cruise ships were, you know, icebreakers as well, but yeah. it was pretty, pretty fantastic when you're going through um, like pack ice in the in the research vessel it literally sounds like you're crashing into something perpetually which you are you're crashing into ice and breaking it up as you go but the noise when you're below deck was just really incredible woke me up the first time we uh encountered it so i (laughs) ran out in my pajamas to see the pack ice all over (laughs) that's incredible to me because i've watched that on national geographic that the icebreakers like that and yes it's loud and you can get stuck in yeah 
It's so interesting. I, I just love that stuff. The, the things that normal people don't get to do. I just, I think that's incredible. Well, Jason, I need to get ready to go to Souls to the Polls today where we'll be uh, campaigning. I love that. And tell me about your campaign then. Let's end it on that. Thank you, Daniel. All right. Well, we are, let's see, today is Sunday and the election is Tuesday. So yesterday I was out at three different polling locations encouraging voters to vote Danielle. And um, and then, yes, uh, well, today I'm going to the courthouse with my whole family and we'll, and a bunch of volunteers and we'll be cheering on people from there. Today is Souls to the Poles. So there are quite a few um, religious groups that are you know, different churches that are helping their constituents get to the polls. So that'll be an exciting time from noon to three today. Good, good. And, uh, and you know, a lot of people have already voted. I think we're probably close to about 40,000 people that have voted in Leon County so far. Um, Agree. Using those great they, drop boxes that are all over the place. Yeah, I do want to give a little PSA out there um, that today is the last day of early voting. Um, so if you want to vote early where there's very few crowds, do it today by six o'clock. Mm. And if you want to vote on election day, then you know be safe, wear your mask. Um, you know, make sure you use your hand sanitizer. And I am very confident that our polling places are clean and safe and they're set up to um, have social distancing. But if you have a mail by vote or a, a vote by mail ballot, um, do not mail it. Bring it yes. to a polling location and drop it off. That's there's there's drop boxes all over the place. Absolutely. And they're at your polling places. And there's two benefits for that. One, you don't need a stamp. And two, you know for sure that it has gone from your hands into a drop box being managed by the supervisor of elections office. And you do not have to rely on the post office to get it there. I love the post office, but there is some funny things happening right now with the post office. So, and we're so close to the election that we really need to encourage people. If you're going to vote by mail, do it on your vote by mail ballot, but physically bring it to a Dropbox location. I love that. Danielle Irwin, and we already mentioned at the top of the show that you're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at Irwin for Leon. Yes. I hope I got, got that it. right. And IrwinforLeon.com. And I hope everybody votes. You're an important <laughs> voice and, and it needs to be, it, we need, we need voices like yours for the future of Florida and combine the future of the nation because we're all going to be dealing with these situations. Thank you so much, Jason, for the opportunity to talk about these important topics. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I love the environment. So letting people know why we need to care and how to care is really important to me. Thank you for being here. You go to the polls. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek security we support you yes we can and to all those who have wondered if america's beacon still burns as bright tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth but from the enduring power of our ideals democracy liberty opportunity and unyielding hope let me tell you something you already know the world ain't all sunshine and rainbow place and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you are nobody.
The Stitcher Smart Radio app, Audible, and Spotify. Yes, we can. Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. Yes, yes. We will do we that. Will do that. We will create, we will create podcasts, podcasts such as Adam, such as has, Adam a beard, has a Beard and the Denton, and the Denton County, County Collective. Collective. The Unsigned Countdown. And we will set up podcasts, podcasts in North Carolina and Georgia and Mississippi and Florida and Arizona and Nevada and Idaho and Manchester, Michigan, Illinois, Wisconsin. And we will bring the truth to the people because the people will have a voice here. No longer will we be ignored. Will we be forced with policy after policy from an ever-changing network of politicians whose only goal it is is to make money to continue to run to continue to make money? They they will listen to us. We we are the people. We we are America. We we are public access America. That's who we That's are. are. And if you didn't and if know you we existed, existed, you might want to get on board. We want to hear from you. You want to hear from us? 